I think it could be really cool if we could bring brands that are interesting abroad and bring them to you here. Um, no one's really doing that other than kind of traditional franchise type businesses. But I think for us, there's something in allowing a, a brand from the US or wherever to just kind of test the water in the UK without having to set up the whole franchise. We can do that quite easily. We have the operating infrastructure to do it. Welcome to our podcast series, Talk Straight, Think Smart with Howard Kennedy. I'm Lydia Christie, a legal director at the firm and your host for this series. However, this isn't a podcast about us. It's about the much more interesting people we're interviewing. My guest today is Dan Warne, who after five years as MD of Deliveroo, set up his own business, Sessions. Sessions offers a platform to emerging and popular restaurant brands. In this episode, you'll hear how Dan's entrepreneurial nature at school was fueled in his early career and how his passion for music helped him reimagine the hospitality sector. So, hi there, Dan. Thank you for joining me today as a guest on our podcast. Hello. How are you? Very good. Uh, all good, all good. Thank you. Um, we've managed to get through all the tech setup, so now we can crack on with uh, having a chat. But and to kick things off, though, for those who don't who don't know you, could you just give us a quick introduction as to who you are? Of course, I'm Dan Warren. I'm the founder of a business called Sessions, which is a, a business that looks to identify current food talent and bring it to people's neighbourhoods in various different forms. Fantastic. And we're going to be talking a bit more about sessions uh, a bit later on. Um, Before we get into it, I wanted just to go back to the beginning and talk a little bit more about you and find out a bit more about you um, and your your upbringing and, and what you were like growing up and uh blimey what kind of chart it's like a psychology (laughs) session this unexpected (laughs) we're doing a a, this is your life um well well, what kind of child uh were you what kind of child wow that that really was an unexpected question Uh, i (laughs) was a sporty child as many kids are um i was quite musical I actually was a chorister at Westminster Abbey once upon a wow. time, which was okay. a pretty hideous experience, if I'm honest. But, you know, nevertheless, there were some interesting memories from that. And what else? I then went on to school to study history. I don't know whether that is particularly relevant, other than I get quite excited by historic buildings I can do interesting things with. (laughs) Um, But what else as a child? Yeah, I think that's about it. Like music, I was very into and actually wanted to go on to study at university. And then I Mm. didn't, I I got a a B, A level in it. So I didn't then go and do it at uni, sadly. But that was my passion. I'd say. That was what was it, what what were your instruments? My instruments were the um, <laughs> the piano, which I suppose is just the kind of foundational instrument, mm. and then uh, I sang obviously from the uh, the abbey, Fire. and then um, mm. went on to sing for a while after that, and then I played clarinet, that old chestnut, as uh, I think probably the cheapest instrument that my parents could encourage me to play. 
Nothing more expensive than that. I mean, can you imagine if your kids wanted to play the, the cello or something? That would be an well, absolute yeah, disaster. Yeah. So yeah. I think I played the cello for about three weeks, and then I then I, um, I had to cut my nails a lot, and I didn't like it. So uh. so that's a few <laughs> that few that. grand down the drain for your parents. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, well, and so so you talked about about school and um, studying history and liking history. Did you did you have an interest in in business? Were you um, did did you grow up with uh, you know family members who who had their own business? Where did where did that kind of spring? No, from? I didn't. Actually, both my parents were teachers. So my dad right. was a head teacher in a school in Croydon called Ashburton, which was. A pretty tough school that he made sure I'd spent a good deal of time working in to toughen me up. And uh, my mum was a deputy head of a, a school in Kingston. So absolutely no business acumen whatsoever. Um, but taught me a lot of, um, largely around how to deal with, with people and, you know, the importance of finding the, the best in everyone you work with, um, which, mm. you know, as a teacher, obviously, if you're a good teacher, you need to do taught me a lot about resilience certainly in my dad's school where he had kids coming onto site with machetes and, and various things like that that he had to deal with that um wow. you know he um he managed to turn that school around so great story there that you know mm. i took a lot from um mm. but no i i think my entrepreneurial nature came more from i went to school in um a, a big public school in in Kent called Tunbridge and mm. because my parents were both state school teachers I didn't have a huge amount of money relative to my peers in that school um, it, you know I got a scholarship to the school which meant it was you know affordable and something I could do mm. um, so you you're constantly playing catch-up so I had various different things on the side that I did to make money so from I think the first business I set up was, believe it or not, if you, so you're, you're boarding in that school and if you behave badly, then the prefects would set you lines from the Bible that you had to write. So you would get, wow. I know, welcome to my world. So you would have to write like 3,000 wow. words from Leviticus and then you would write these words out and the next morning you had to do it. So they, they'd come in and they say, right, you've got to do this before 7 a.m. before breakfast. And so you'd write these things from like, you know, 5 a.m. or whatever. And then you'd hand them in to the prefect. I mean, it was just horrendous. Anyway, I, I soon realized that these guys, they'd take all of the, the lines and then they'd all put them in this big black bin liner and chuck them away. And so oh. I would discover the bin liner and it went out like every month or so. And I'd file them all in the various different things for the Bible. And then everyone knew that if you got words, then you just came to me and you're like, right, shit, I've got 3,000 words from Leviticus. And I say, right, I've got one of those. That'll cost you 30 quid. And yeah, made a, a little racket out of that, which this, was which was this wonderful. Is, <laughs> this is brilliant. Now, the, the, I, I mean, I want to spend the rest of the podcast just talking about that, but we can't. But <laughs> but that, that tells me a lot about... As you say, the the entrepreneurial spirit that that then flourished because then you went on to do history at university, didn't you? And then I did, yes. Um, I, I went to Nottingham Uni, and it, I have to say, I, I didn't do a huge amount of studying. I, I largely 
tried to continue that entrepreneurial vein um I ended Go, up going through the black going through the black bin bags that, in, ba- uh, that in, the pro- in, this time the proverbial <laughs> black bin liner was something yeah. just as sexy which was selling gas and electricity around to various student houses um <laughs> which was interesting actually because the guy that I then founded sessions with um also was selling gas and electricity with me at university at that time and and still sells gas okay, for a so much larger business to this day so right. interesting for him he loved he so loved you, it that much that he, he's, he continued he's, he's kept it he's kept going on the gas yeah so and then and then kind of 10 years on after uni you're then managing director for Deliveroo um how do you go from selling the gas and electricity at Nottingham to being MD of you know yeah what I, I, this, I don't you know, know kind really of I, this 10 year period I, so I left I left university and I was I was really clear that at that time I wanted to get into journalism um, and I was, I was super clear about it I think because of the nature of the the um, history that I'd studied I thought it could be quite easily applied to to being a journalist and it sounded quite adventurous and exciting and I'm just so glad that I didn't take that path but um, I I thought right if I'm going to be a journalist I should try and get in touch with various different media publications and broadcasters and, and see where I go. And I ended up getting a, an interview with a, a company called Chrysalis Radio, who at the time owned a few kind of mainstream radio stations like Heart FM and LBC and various others. Mm. And it, I was convinced by this really charismatic guy that the best route in was you start in sales and then once you're in, you get to know the guys on the other side of the house and, and then you can start doing journalism. And little did I know, as soon as you join on the sales team, you're on the set, like absolutely, will you not spend any time with journalists? You are a salesperson and you spend your time <laughs> largely going out, drinking with clients and um, getting them excited about buying radio on the basis that you can take them to you know, Rocker or Hakkasan or whatever. That that was basically how the the deals would be made. Um, when I started my career in two thousand five, that kind of changed with the with the financial crash, sadly. Um, but so I, I started there without really that much thought, other than I thought it could be a route into journalism, which which definitely wasn't the case. But it nevertheless was a a great place to start my career because it was an entrepreneurial business that kind of celebrated people that came up with ideas and although I was sat at a desk largely there to to sell media space um, they were really keen to hear my ideas for how the business could grow and they ended up running a, a dragon's den type competition across the company saying right who can come up with an idea for where the business needs to go and it was a, a radio station a, a set of radio stations as well as being a a, a music publishing label um, so I, with the music um, history, I ended up coming up with a music platform that was going to allow people to share different lines of music um, and from all across the world it was going to be this online platform and I pitched that and I ended up winning that and spent a lot of time then setting up this business with the CEO of Chrysalis and I was only probably 20 four, 23, 24. So it's really early in my right. career. Yeah. And 
that was just a phenomenal experience for me because the guy I was working with was really, really experienced on it and kind of taught me how to, to do financial modeling and how to think about a business plan and, and a load of stuff that you just don't get at university. You know, you, you don't study the vocation you're then going to go on and do unless, of course, you're, you're a lawyer where I suppose you kind of have to do that. But it's it's different in, in business. And... Um, I, from there, just had a real taste for it. It, it was hard for me following that to, to work in a more established corporate. And I knew that because that is actually what I did next. So I tried to start that business. Then unfortunately, Chrysalis got sold to Global, which was a much bigger media enterprise. Global then, you know, they own most of the radio stations now. They bought another business called GCAP, so they own like Capital FM, and mm. they also own most of the uh, the ad space on the Tube and that kind of, you know, you'll see Global everywhere. And so the, the CEO of Global, I then pitched the idea to, and, you know, he was very gracious with it, but he just felt it wasn't right for them. You know, they wanted to focus on their mm. core business. So I then left and joined Orange, which at the time I felt was... It's really exciting business. And if you remember Orange's adverts yeah. back then, they were like pioneering the future's bright, all of that. And so I thought, okay, yes. well, you know, that might be. I think a- I started. I think I started off with Orange actually. Many. Oh really? <laughs> well, well, well. Well, I thought, okay, well, if, if you're going to go corporate, Orange is is the place to be. Yeah. And it, so I joined Orange, and it was just unbelievably corporate. And so within about nine months, I just thought, yeah, this this absolutely isn't for me. And the job I had at Orange was I was responsible for managing their web portal. Do you remember what a web portal was? <laughs> that was how you uh, you got <laughs> you navigated the internet, so you wouldn't use. No, I can remember. I can remember CDs. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a bit like AOL, but it was Orange's version of that because they had a they bought a. Um, a a platform called Wanadu, which was like a broadband provider. Again, seriously dating myself here. And so my job was to get all of the content for the portal by brokering deals with third parties who could provide it. And one of the, the sectors I looked after was travel. So we did a deal with Expedia, and then we were introduced to a company called TravelZoo, which I hadn't at the time heard of, that did deals in the travel space. And... I ended up having a meeting with their European MD about partnering with TravelZoo and I kind of got through the pitch and everything and and he stopped me and he said, look, I've got no interest in working with Orange. I was like, okay, well, thanks for spending an hour with me only to tell me that. Um, But he said, but I'm super interested in hiring you. So I was like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Um, And he, on the job, offered me uh, on the spot offered me a job Mm. and it it was a really exciting one the idea was I'd set up a new division for them focused on the restaurant space so they did lots of deals in travel but they didn't do any for local restaurants and I was I was I was one sorry to interrupt Dan I was wondering because we've had music sport and I was thinking uh, given what where we're what we're going to talk about where, where does food come into this food is and I'll be careful what I say, but I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I love great food because who doesn't? But I'm not like a foodie. You know, I'm not somebody that's out every week trying to discover 
the next hot restaurant. I mean, that me personally, that's not me. But Sessions, that's what Sessions does. Um, but, you know, I instead, I think in the food space, I'm, I'm kind of skipping ahead a bit, but I wanted to set up a business that could take the all of the learnings I had from the various different sectors I've worked in and apply it there. So, you know, music, if you think of how a, a record label works, a record label will identify talent. They'll have talent scouts that, that look for, for what's hot and they'll bring that talent in and then produce an album with them and then they'll distribute that album um, and sell it to the consumer. And uh, I just felt that within the food space, <clears throat> which I worked at TravelZoo for five years and I built a business in the US for them that was focused only on restaurants and food. Um, and then Deliveroo, where I was the MD for the UK for five years, um, again, focused wholly on food. I just felt that the industry didn't have that kind of approach. So didn't have a way of identifying what's hot, that talent, and then collating it in the same way that a record label might. Then working with the talent to produce a, in this case in food, a menu or a brand or something um, novel and new, and then working to then bring that brand to consumers, um, which we do predominantly through a big network of, of kitchens that we have with third-party operators. So what we do is identify really great local businesses that are interested in bringing in some of the brands we've identified as, as being interesting to consumers. And then we, um, having plugged those menus in, we then work with delivery platforms to um, to distribute them. So that's kind of the core model. And then we have our big physical sites as, as almost like a marketing lever to shine a light on those brands and get people excited by them. So you've talked down about um, how you wanted then to bring up and coming chefs and, and brands out to consumers. And what I was wanting to ask you really about the whole idea about sessions was, um, you know, how do you go from, so you, you're obviously MD at Deliveroo at this point, and then at what point you have an idea for sessions, at what point does it start becoming, you know, a reality and how, how quickly did that happen from the point at which you'd kind of had the idea to then, you know, moving on from, you know, employment to starting your own thing? To no employment, which is what you do <laughs> <Yeah>. initially. <laughs> to, no, to more exciting things, is how I would put yeah. it. <laughs> um, it's, it's not an easy thing. So I was even joining Deliveroo, which was back in 2014. I had, I was in San Francisco, I was in a, a great job, um, at, you know, reasonably good salary, they pay well in the US. Um, and to take the plunge joining Deliveroo just after their Series A, which back then a Series A was about, for Deliveroo, it was about three million pounds. Series A now might be, you know, 30 million pounds. Um, but the, the VC landscape was quite nascent in Europe mm. at that time. So to join a business at that stage with the, the requisite salary decrease and... Um, and all of that was was a risk, but at that point, especially being that I just had my first daughter out in San Francisco, and then my wife was pregnant with our second, so mm. 
we thought, okay, joining a startup at that stage is just crazy. But I had a, a taste for it, and I was fortunate to join and be afforded, you know, some fairly generous equity and to really feel a part of that business. You know, mm. reasonably close to being a, a co-founder of it. I was the twelfth employee, mm. um, and that was just such a fantastic experience over five years. But I think I was quite clear at after four of those years, that it by then had become much larger. And we, before I left, we did a big round of funding from Amazon. Mm. And I just felt that I was better placed earlier in a company's life cycle when you're you're building it, perhaps more than when you're, um, you're kind of squeezing it for as much Mm. profit as you can get out of it. and still continue to grow it, but maybe in a slightly more orderly way. I, I prefer the chaos of, of the earlier stages. Of a, of a startup. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but, you know, I, I probably took a year of of conversations with people. You know, I was really fortunate that, that Will, the founder of Deliveroo, was, you know, afforded me a lot of time in talking through this stuff and never felt kind of threatened by the idea that I might want to go and do my own thing afterwards. I think, you know, for him part of building Deliveroo was the, the idea that you could build people up that could then mm. go and start other great businesses. So, you know, it was it was a really good kind of environment for me to to think about what mm. I, I could make an impact in. Mm. And I had spent a lot of time working with a lot of restaurants. I mean, we had about 30,000 restaurants on the platform. And I felt that consumers increasingly wanted something different from their food experience. They, they didn't perhaps subscribe to the commoditized chain proposition that's dominated the high street for a long time. Um, and there was a lot of engagement from consumers, particularly millennials and Gen Zs, in food content online that, that moves at a, a very different pace to the physical world. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I wanted to to offer consumers a more physical version of that dynamism that you get in the online world. So where brands mm. come and go quite swiftly and when you can interact with different talent and founders um, at some pace versus in the physical world where you know you have a restaurant that's there for a 20-year lease. Like mm. I, I just don't think that in the future that's what you're going to get. Mm. And so solving this problem, this idea of, okay, how can I create a an environment for founders to kind of come together um, and then find a way to bring it to consumers in a, a kind of structured, scalable manner. Mm. Um, I didn't really have the answer when I left to that, but I figured there were lots of food halls up and down the country and they did a, a job of offering a more dynamic um, fluid setting where brands come and go and mm. they kind of championed early stage concepts. And I felt, okay, well, as a starting point to anchor the business, that's that's probably quite an interesting place to, to start. I, I didn't have any desire to like roll out food tools. In, in my mind, that is, it's an attractive business for sure, but I'm a, you know, a digital 
um, person. Like I prefer the scale that you can get from being able to, to use tech to, tech. to build well, I something. Just, I was just going to ask Dan, and, and, and just for, for the listeners to know, to understand, you know, how much of sessions is, is online and how, and, and, and how much is physically, you know, bricks and mortar. It, you've, you've currently got two physical locations. Yeah, so, so we have, <clears throat> as I say, I anchored the business with a food hall down in Brighton. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that, I mean, in part was, <clears throat> I felt that was just a good place to start leaving Deliveroo, knowing that there could be a profit generative entity from which I could then layer on the, the other component parts of what this business is. Um, but really the, the purpose of that food hall is to attract the, the hottest brands in the market um, and brands typically and, and food talent typically like the idea of having their name in lights in that way that you can't yeah. get from purely having a, a virtual only brand. So I felt that this was quite a good route to bringing the talent in and a good route to building our own brand and and driving consumer adoption of our digital products. So we have a native app um, which most of the downloads are driven through the physical spaces. So you could use it as something of a marketing vehicle. The physical site we have in, in London, in Islington, is is a little different to that. So we felt, okay, the the second part of, of what we started doing after the food hall down in Brighton was launching these digital kitchens. Mm. When I say digital kitchens, essentially kitchens where we bring the brands but we don't operate anything else so we will work with say a hotel that has a a kitchen um, and labor on site that they don't properly leverage and we'll bring them brands that are current and interesting to consumers and then we'll set them up through delivery platforms and through our own platform to to drive sales into that kitchen so it becomes mm. highly profitable for them but also it's a route to scaling the brands far faster than trying to use bricks and mortar mm. yeah. so we yeah. we took that route next that now is probably 60 percent of our business in terms of right, revenue okay. so it's it's the lion's share and it will become bigger and bigger, bigger yeah. um, but the the model in london in islington was designed to be what we call a neighborhood food hall so you have these really big landmark food halls which are expensive and not very scalable, mm. but you know, amazing if you get them right, as we were discussing before the, the interview mm. began. And then you have the hyper scalable, what we call accelerator model, where you license these concepts out to other people's kitchens. Yeah. And we felt that it would be interesting to to see what an in-between looked like. Mm. So, you know, we had quite a lot of our accelerator partners saying, you're letting us use these brands for delivery what would this look like if we franchised a whole restaurant from you? Mm, mm. Um, and it, so we felt, okay, well, that's interesting. Let's prototype that. And it, so that's what we've launched in Islington, which is a much, much smaller format. It's about the size of what a typical casual dining restaurant would look like. It's about 5,000 mm. square feet. Mm. And it, there we run the entire kitchen and we effectively outsource the labor in that kitchen to brands that we bring in and run them all simultaneously from that kitchen. Have you, um, you've currently got, is there, a, is there four brands currently then in the uh, There location? are, yes, currently there are four brands in there, or three brands in there. Um, how long, how long do your, do the, do the kind of, these kind of brands kind of stay with you or the, or the kind of the, the chefs, um, you know, how long are they staying with you before 
because I, I get the sense as you say it's they're with you for a period and then you want to um, bring in, you know, other talent, as you say, to, to showcase. Yeah, so it, it kind of depends. So the, the more traditional food hall model that we have down in Brighton, um, there is obviously a need to commit to a defined period of time um, because you have a founder who's likely going to be operating themselves and setting up that operation on site. So you don't want them to have to do that and then boot them out after a month if it doesn't work. That just wouldn't be right. Whereas the model we have in <coughs> Islington and in, in our broader accelerator business, um, the founder, the talent is not the operator. And so therefore you can be much more fluid with it. So for example, right, okay. in Islington, the three brands, we put together menus with them, but otherwise, the the deal is we pay a, a licensing fee to them for the brand rather like a royalty in music and as long as you keep selling well to consumers because they're interested in that everyone wins mm. um and just you know i'll, I'll be yeah. very honest here if it stops selling then it's yeah, yeah. moved on yeah I, i'm gonna i think i feel like i know the answer but i'm not gonna guess the answer because the music theme has come up and now that i've heard about your your background as a child and mu- the music so I want to ask you about the name before we move on and look at where sessions is going in the future I just want to ask you about the name and is it music related is what I want to ask you <laughs> it, it, it is yeah so for yeah. any brands we have coming in we'll say in sessions with and then x concept so yeah idea being that music is a bit more fluid that you can produce tracks or hits and they kind of come and go and we don't, I, I suppose we started the business really focused on early stage founders where we're a little less precious about that now, if I'm honest. It, mm. it just needs to be hot and current. And right, sometimes okay. something current might be something a bit more established. But as long as it's still on vogue, it's something consumers will want and be excited by. And as long as we yeah. can bring it to them where they wouldn't otherwise have access to it, then that's what we're all about rather than I think we we kind of risk I mean don't get me wrong we want to help founders but we risk being a bit earnest in saying we're we're only about you know early stage kind yeah. of street food type brands where of course we will play there and and work with a number of them and there are some great stories around yeah. how we supported them but we don't squarely work with that kind of business and 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 before we go on to kind of what's what what's next for sessions, I just want to ask: Have you contemplated, given the musical background you have, and in sessions with Dan Warren at any of these locations? <laughs> um, we we I'm yet to take the the DJ stand into my own hands, um, but we do. Funnily enough, a load of chefs love DJing. I mean, they all think they're great DJs. So who, who doesn't? Yeah, hundred percent. Especially now, it's kind of easy. You just like you know, do something on your Mac. It's like straightforward. Um, so we we have Brilliant. like for example, next week we've got a um, beats and eats night with um, big tunes with Big Hass, who is one of the the chefs we have. Brilliant. Hass is a good example of you know he he's pretty well established. He's got a Channel Four show, a YouTube channel. Yeah. Um, but he's still not available in a restaurant in London other than through our restaurant. So 
you know, that that's a good example of where we're trying to bring something to you you wouldn't otherwise be able to get. But it might be someone who still has quite yeah. a big following already. So there's evidence that consumers will want it yeah. rather than trying to hunt for, you know, a street food brand and dig that out and promote that, which is kind of where we started and, and where I thought originally we would go. Yeah, yeah. So looking looking now down at, you know, the future for sessions, I, I've I've read about kind of the the millions. You talked earlier about how many millions a Series A is was previously. I've, I think I read something like seven and a half million that you've just raised. Um, what are the what are the pla- what are the plans that you're allowed to talk about <laughs> uh, on the podcast for sessions? We raised. Yeah, we raised about eight and a half at the end of last year. And it, the predominant focus of that is to expand our reach a bit in terms of bringing in really great brands and part of the the types of brands we want to bring in will be we want to expand our reach beyond the UK so I think it could be really cool if we could bring brands that are interesting abroad and bring them to you here um, at, no one's really doing that other than kind of traditional franchise type businesses. But I think for us, there's something in allowing a a brand from the US or wherever to just kind of test the water in the UK Mm. without having to set up the whole franchise. We can do that quite easily. We have the operating infrastructure to do it. Um, So some of it's around that, some of it's around scaling out our sales team in order to to handle the uh, demand that we have for bringing those brands into various different markets across the UK for now I'm not looking mm. at expanding yet beyond how the big, UK how big how big is your team at the moment then how many staff um, do you currently employ HQ team is about 50 and overall we're probably 130 something like that including our on-site teams because we have Shelter Hall and Islington and that's quite that's 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 quite a number I mean you you started off in well, straight, pretty much straight after the pandemic, is that right? In 2020, so... Yeah, well, we I incorporated the business in 2019 and yeah. um, we launched Shelter Hall in 2020. Yeah. yeah. So we've we've been able to expand reasonably quickly. Quick. I think, yeah, our licensing model to High Street Partners has, has really helped with that because mm. that's a model that hasn't been dampened by covid in the way Mm. that a traditional hospitality business might have been Mm. so that's been um over the last two years the predominant growth lever for us Mm. um we are investing quite a bit in technology so since that round of funding we launched our own consumer app we actually didn't have a consumer app prior to that Mm. and that allows for all of our transactions on site so you mentioned your experience at timeout market Mm. where you had to queue to get your food and then you go back to your table and then you f- then you go and pick up your food again. Um, we just felt that that was a slightly archaic mm. consumer journey on site. So with our app, you order at table and then the food is brought to your table. So mm. it just, it, I think it's a little bit slicker, but more do important still ha- to do our still strategy. Ha- do you still have to do the laps? You have to do the laps of all the... Uh... <laughs> you, um, <laughs> You, you can do the laps if you wish, if you want the steps, but you uh, you don't need to. You can sit down and have you have, you. yeah, you can have it all brought to you, much like a restaurant, which, mm. you know, I think people kind of, people new to our sites like to do the laps sometimes. Yeah. Um, but we get such high retention mm. that the people that come back, they just 
they know what they sit want. Down and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. and just order. Um, so yeah, we, we're spending a, a fair bit on on technology mm. to build that out, and oper- what I call operational technology. So ensuring mm. our kitchens are entirely digital, so everything mm. is done through kitchen screens, and we're working with a partner on AI tech in cameras we've installed in our kitchens that show whether a dish is prepared in the right way. So that kind of thing just allows more scalability mm. in the product. Oh, sorry, I was I, I wanted to ask you something. Sorry, it, it, we took because I know what from what you're what you've been talking about that kind of consumer demands and the way that consumers want to have this experience is really key. I, I wanted to ask you about the extent to which uh, you think consumers are interested in, you know, what, what I'm going to call them kind of other non necessarily kind of the food related journey or experience, but other values in, you know, coming to you. So w- we hear a lot about ESG at the moment and other kind of um, things that consumers will take into account when they're looking at, you know, how they want to spend their money, where they want to go. Is that, are these things that your business looks at? takes into account or yeah we've applied now to be a b corp so we submitted that about a month or so ago right okay and we felt that we were a company well conditioned to do that in part because we are supporting a more democratic ecosystem albeit that i i don't want to be too earnest with that i think you need to be a little bit careful you set yourself up for being slapped down if you don't live up to you know wiser than white values um but nevertheless you know we we do do that that is at the heart of what we do and we also frankly are just a, a new business i think it's much easier to apply for b corp and subscribe to the operational policies and processes that you need in order to do that when you're almost building them from scratch i think it's harder for a bigger business to have to retrofit them um, and go back to scratch and there are numerous stakeholders involved and the bureaucracy can just bog it down so you know we're, we're doing that which i think is important to us important to the attracting of talent into our business and when i say talent i mean it both in terms of employees and, and the, the yeah. brands that we work with mm. um and are of you, course yeah and of course important to the consumer too i would say yeah. that you know, what we've learned is the we still have if you go to our website quite a um a, a kind of mission-driven, purpose-driven statement and a language associated with that voice um, with a view that that, you know, not only reflected some of what we were doing, but that consumers would engage with that. Mm. Um, I think what we've found is, yes, they do engage with that, but they engage even more with what's really hot and interesting Mm. to them. Um, Mm. So... You know, I think where our brands evolved is towards not forgetting the former. Still, when we build something like what we did in Islington, as much as possible is, um, and, and you'll see it on site in both the furniture and all of the infrastructure, is, is sustainable. So a lot of it's recycled. We're reusing pretty much all of the kitchen, the extract, etc. Um, but at the same time, like we're very conscious of appeal first you know we need to make sure that what we have is Mm. the kind of thing that will sell and and get people excited and Mm. and i've said to the guys i don't want to hide 
away from that. Like we are a commercial enterprise. Yeah, you you touched on also, um, you know, appealing from a recruitment point of view. Uh, you know, I know certainly in, in my work that um, with working with retail, leisure, and hospitality businesses, that retention and recruitment of staff is a real, real ongoing uh, problem. Is that something? that you're also experiencing I mean, you've got you've got a big team um yeah i i it's easier at hq um not easy but easier i think in part because the the kind of tech startup ecosystem has got a bit bruised over the last few months so you know you read a lot about the big grocery delivery companies the gorillas and various losing mm. staff and some of the, the big fintech companies like Klarna laying off stuff. So there, there's a bit more of a pool of talent available than perhaps there was in terms mm. of bringing in, um, you know, th- that high educational level um, driven young. Um, and we've got quite a lot of those and that's mm. much of the driving force of the business from HQ. Um, much, much harder finding talent on site, like without a shadow of a doubt. and. Yeah, obviously, while we do much of our business working with other operators, there is still a, a fundamental part of our business that is done um, with us operating. And so therefore, we're at the fulcrum of, mm. of that crisis yeah, and that yeah. challenge. Yeah. Um, how do we overcome it? Um, we've got some quite interesting, what I think are quite creative ways of addressing it. So, for example, we have a grad scheme. Um, where for the first six months of the grad scheme, you, you go and you work in a kitchen. Um, so we've actually found recruiting grads to be far, far easier than recruiting mm. um, kitchen labor. And these guys will go in and, and get trained up and they will you know bring the, the desired approach, hopefully. We're quite early in the program. Um, but also like what we want from it is a feedback loop so that when they're there, they'll, they'll continually come back to HQ every couple of weeks, sit down with their manager, talk through, yeah. okay, what have we seen? They, they'll get seconded to different areas of the business. And actually the, the cost of a quality grad um, relative to the cost of what you're actually having to pay currently um, for labor, which is mm. as much as, you know, 16 pounds an hour for, for mm. someone, you know, for, for some of the entry level chefs, like it's, it's actually comparable. So it's not like you're, yeah, yeah you're investing for the future, but yeah, actually strangely, you're not investing that much more than you would mm. anyway be investing. So we're, we're trying to do that just to freshen up the approach there. Um, <clears throat> but of course, you know, the lion's share of, the labor are people mm. that do that as a vocation. Mm. And for them, it's about making the, the working conditions and the environment really great and ensuring that in every kitchen, and it, we have Shelter Hall, we have um, Islington, we also operate a couple of dark kitchens ourselves, um, that you know, even if you're in a kitchen in, I don't know, um, Nine Elms, which is what, 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 one of our kitchens, um, your fully understanding of why you're doing what you're doing in that kitchen, how it contributes to the, the broader company mm. strategy and why it's important that you hit certain metrics. And we try and give everyone as much visibility as is viable mm. so that they get the why bit of, um, of their day to day. Of what they're doing, yeah, and their contribution. Yeah, and I, I just, I feel like often there is, I mean, just 
I'm not picking on hospitality. I think it's it's across any sector, but that I've seen people of the view that oh well they're just you know they just want to come in and get a paycheck. They don't really care mm-hmm. about like what we're doing, so they don't bother to invest in that bit. Mm-hmm. And actually, I've I've seen that when you do that, it really does have a a very positive impact on them. Not everyone, like let's be honest, there are some people that might just mm-hmm. be doing it as a student to get paid, and that's fine. You know, mm-hmm. I've I've been there myself. Um, but then there are some that black, really... black bin bags. Black bin bags <laughs> yeah. story comes back to mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then there are some that really care. So you know, you gotta you yeah. gotta kind of yeah give everyone the benefit of the doubt okay. and hope that they do. And if they don't, well, yeah. Dan, that's been. I mean, I mean, I can't wait to uh, to to come and visit. I mentioned to you. Um, that Brighton is going to be my probably my first my first visit when I get down there but yeah thank you very much Dan to close off we have a standing tradition on this podcast series of finishing with um a quick fire round of questions so it's only five questions um just say the first thing that comes to mind um and uh yeah here we go uh, what's your favourite brand listed with sessions? Oh, I couldn't possibly answer that. <laughs> so, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> um, well, you know what? I, yes, maybe I can. Uh, my favourite is a brand called Tiger and Rabbit. Um, personal taste, but I just think it's an amazing product. Always really consistent, really great. Kimchi bowls, fantastic. Where can, where can we find that? Is that Brighton That's or... In Islington. Is, Islington, right, Islington. Thank you. Um... So hybrid working, do you think it's here to stay or is going to be a distant memory? I mean, it's it's definitely here to stay. The question for me is how to make the most of it. So we have three days a week that we mandate in the office and two days you can work from home. I'd rather probably have four days in the office, but I just recognise <laughs> that to make it an attractive place for a Gen Z, it has to be three at max. In my mind, I, I, um, I'd agree. I'd agree with that. I'd agree. Um, would you rather grow your business, sell your business, or start again? I would rather, at the moment, just grow, but you know, at some point, sell. Hopefully, I don't just want to be growing forever. <laughs> no. um, what would you invest more in right now, people or tech? Uh, is that a is that, is that a real a choice? It's um, I I think you've got to balance it. There's a it, it clear. We we actually just got a really good example, really good article from Grace Dent, the food critic from the Guardian about mm. Shelter Hall, and one of the things she said was the tech was great and seamless and really easy to order through, but then you still have a human that brings you the food and it treated her really well, made sure that she was looked after throughout the whole thing. So there's got to be a good blend between those two things. I'll let you have that. (laughs) Last question. When it comes to decision-making, are you perfection every time or launch and learn? I uh, am probably too much launch and learn. Um, (laughs) I think I I could do with a little bit more perfection in that. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, I thank you ever so much, Dan. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Um, and so it does just lead me to, to say thank you and that I'm very much looking forward to coming uh, to visit. And I've really enjoyed hearing hearing the story of, of, of your kind of career progression and um, all about sessions. So thank you very much. Well, thanks very much, Lydia.
So there you have it, the story of how Dan's entrepreneurial spirit grew, from selling detention lines at school to being the 12th employee at Deliveroo, to using his wealth of experience to start his own business sessions and creating a new way of dining out. This podcast was recorded in October 2022. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening from to find out who our next guest will be. Thank you for listening. Thank you.